0: Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Knaxtat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable, high-yield article reference library aligned with the micrograph Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mohscollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening.
1: This is Dr. Thomas Maxted once again for a conversation in Mohs surgery. I thank everybody for tuning in. Today we've got a special episode for you uh, in a number of ways. Uh, Firstly, we're recording this episode live from our Mohs College annual meeting, so if you choose to picture all of us sitting here in armchairs around fire having a nice conversation, please do that. Uh, I'm very happy to be here with two of my close colleagues and friends. Uh, with me today is Dr. Sean Connon. Uh, Dr. Conan graduated from the Mohs Surgery Fellowship at the Clinical Clinic Foundation in 2018 and is now in private practice at the Center for Dermatologic Care in Thousand Oaks and Santa Barbara in California. Welcome, Sean. Thanks
0: for having me, Thomas. I appreciate it.
1: Also with me today, I have Lindsay Collins. Uh, Lindsay graduated uh, in 2017 from the University of Vermont Fellowship and is now in academic practice uh, as the director of dermatologic surgery at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center, where she's also an assistant professor. Lindsay, welcome.
2: Thank you very much, Thomas.
1: So historically, I've told our listeners this before, we've focused on one article and sort of dissected the data and the intention of the authors. But the more we do it, the more I try to branch out and maybe include some different type of topics to increase what we offer our listeners. And so much like the interview with Dr. Leshin that some of you all may have heard, this will be more of a sort of hot seat of you're telling me how you've lived your career so far, what you've learned, what you wish you'd known. So Lindsay, we'll start with you. Why did you choose that academic practice model that you're in?
2: So I knew that I wanted to go into academics early on. Um, I've always enjoyed teaching. Um, I enjoy working with residents and medical students, and I knew I wanted to um, go somewhere where I could continue to, to uh, do that. Um, and I also wanted to be in a setting where I could work closely um, with my colleagues in oculoplastics and radiation um, oncology, and I knew that in an academic setting, um, I would easily be able to do that.
1: Very neat. Sean, you chose a different career path, um, joining a private practice in California. And, you know, oftentimes there's multiple things that go into these considerations. It's not just the practice model. You've got a family, you've got a life that you build around your career. So, So what made your particular practice model attractive to you?
0: Yes. Uh, so my situation was a little unique in that um, my wife had matched um, at a fellowship program in Southern California. And so I was a little bit geographically limited in that. And so with that, um, you know, my love in dermatology is Mohs surgery. And so I wanted to utilize those skills um, to its most ability. And um, my practice model that I chose ended up being private practice because I had the greatest ability with the most exposure to Mohs surgery. And, um, and uh, that's what I went with. So then probably for many of us, especially, when we graduate
1: and and potentially join a a field that may geographically be somewhat saturated. One of the biggest factors for, I think, a lot of the younger-most surgeons is really case volume and guaranteed case volume. But there's a lot of other intangibles that go into that decision. So, Lindsay, in addition to just knowing that you're actually going to get to do what you've trained for a year and three years of residency to do, um, what are the main factors that went into your consideration for not necessarily choosing your type of job, but ultimately your job?
2: Yeah. So there were many factors that I considered in that. Um, Dr. Statsko was the chair of our department at the time um, and is currently the chair and was also the president of the Mohs College when I interviewed with him. And I knew he had a wonderful reputation um, and was very well known. And I knew that he would be a great mentor and boss for me. So that was one of the main things that drew me to the University of Oklahoma. Um, And also, I knew that I wanted to start off on day one being able to do full-time Mohs and not have to do General Durham to build up my practice. And there were very few places that I interviewed where I could actually start off doing Mo's full-time and um, not have to build up that practice. And so that also drew me to the University of Oklahoma. And then um, also, I'm, I'm originally from Arkansas, and geographic location wasn't a huge factor, but it was definitely nicer to be moving back um, closer to my family in Arkansas. Those are the main factors that drew me um, to where I am now.
1: Sean, we learned about your factors a little bit with, with- family and geography in addition to simply the opportunity to do a lot of most surgery now that you've been at it for a number of months what are the things that you thought would be very difficult out of fellowship that you actually found to be relatively easy or things you thought would occupy much more of your time or attention and end up being you know some of the lower priority or the more manageable things that you do
0: Yeah, you know, I I think um, being fresh out of a fellowship and joining a private practice, one of my biggest worries or concerns was getting the volume that um, I wanted and needed in a practice. And um, my practice did an excellent job at filling my schedule, advocating me as a surgeon and advertising and getting my schedule filled. So when I showed up on day one, I had most cases, my schedules were filled. I thought that would be the biggest obstacle. And in reality, that's the least thing I need to worry about. So I really give kudos um, to my practice, my boss, uh, Dr. Kaufman, um, for really filling my schedule and making sure I was busy from day one. And, and that's honestly one of the least uh, the least of my worries in terms of um, becoming uh, becoming a dermatologic surgeon.
2: Yeah, I agree with you that um, when you start your practice, that's that's one of the biggest worries is that you're not going to have enough patients to see. And um, so it's great to be able to start off on day one and start running and not have to worry about that. So.
1: I want to dig a little deeper here and say, okay, that was the main difficulty or your main worry day one, but fast forward day 30, day 60, what were the sort of things that you were thinking, was there more of a concern about knowing how to reconstruct something? Was it more the concern of, am I calling this slide clear? Uh, Am I being productive enough for my office? Uh, Am I writing medically, legally sound notes and documentation and coding? What goes through the mind, and I think this will just be really helpful for potentially some of our newer resident listeners, our, our fellow listeners, as we try to expand this podcast, um, share those, those struggles or maybe the things that didn't end up being struggles.
2: So I think for anybody fresh out of fellowship, that first really big repair that you have on your own, when your fellowship director is not, you know, standing over your shoulder guiding you through it, is is daunting. You know, when when you're the one in charge, you're making the final cuts, you're making the final decisions, and I think everyone would agree that it's a little a little nerve wracking on that first case. But you know, you just continually remind yourself that you received great training, you know what you're doing, and um, stay calm and um, focused, and um, you know, it gets easier with. The repair and um, you just have to give yourself time and, and um, remind yourself that you've received great training.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think also, um, you know, in terms of reconstruction, you know, as a fellow, for those uh, applying for fellowships, choose a fellowship that works for you. Um, For me, um, Dr. Vitamos and uh, colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic provided ample opportunity for reconstructive cases. I felt they had a lot of autonomy. So in terms of reconstruction, obviously, there are difficult cases um, that you tend to worry about and, you know, stress over. Um, But for for me, I think the biggest kind of taking off the the training wheels was with uh, the pathologic diagnoses. I think in the first couple of months, that's the first time where you're you're doing that and making that decision on your own. Whereas in the reconstruction and fellowship, you're the one doing it. So you know what you can do, you know your limitations, you know your strong suits. But when you're first out of practice, calling and making that pathological call is the its the first time that that's really your true decision. And so sometimes you can second guess yourself. But to echo um, what Dr. Collins had mentioned, you just have to stay calm, understand that you know, you're know you well-trained, you're trained to do this, and um, you just have to make a sound decision that's in the best interest of you and in your patient. And I think it's so great when we put this in the context of being at our meeting now
1: and um, just yesterday listening to Dr. Stiegel present some of their data from practice of Zatelli and, and Broadland to uh, to look at, you know, if, if we're doing 1,200 stages and interpreting them on our own during our fellowship, we get to a very comfortable error rate compared to those of our mentors and more experienced colleagues. And certainly, I know enough about the two fellowships that my uh, guests graduated from that they've met those milestones. And at that point, it truly just becomes a mind game of reminding yourself that you're mentally prepared. Now, Sean, when you are at a place like the Cleveland Clinic, I imagine it's similar Lindsay at uh, the University of Vermont you, you you feel that like you have a little bit of a safety net, and that holds true both as a fellow and also as staff there. Being in a private practice now, is that something you miss or that you found to be present in other ways or something that you really haven't found you needed that much?
0: Um, you know, in terms of uh, reconstructive and day-to-day, I, I haven't missed it so much, but what I do miss is the, the academic setting. And going back to the initial question of choosing practices, I did want that academic feel with multiple physicians, multiple doctors, because in the field of medicine, Medicine, we're constantly learning each and every day from each other, different techniques. That constant um, conversation with other doctors is really important. And so the biggest thing that I kind of miss from a big academic field like the Cleveland Clinic is when those bigger complex cases come in. Those stage three squamous cell carcinomas where you need to discuss imaging, you need to get radiation involved and just get the ball rolling on the coordination of care can be quite cumbersome as a new doctor in a new practice for a number of reasons. I don't know these other doctors personally so now i'm going on recommendations based on other people but i haven't met them i don't know where their office is and then the logistics of patients being local to your practice not wanting to travel to, say, another academic institution. Those are some of the biggest hurdles that I had to kind of get over and get a good referral base that I trust, that they trust me, and then are able to speak and work out cases. I think that was the initial trouble at first, but we're, we're working on it and we're getting a system in place. Now, Lindsay, you have the, the benefit of,
1: safety net is probably not even the right word, but you have the benefit of having a senior colleague mm-hmm. with you. How, how much is that something that you rely on in, in daily practice? And how would you reflect on it as giving advice to the future at fellows who are are graduating? How, How important is that safety? How often do you find yourself going to your senior mentors now and, and asking for advice or feedback or, or their review?
2: Yeah, so um, it's definitely not frequent. Um, but when I have a very challenging case um, or a difficult past slide, it's wonderful having someone available that I can um, have come down and take a look at it and um, bounce ideas off of. And it's been a huge blessing. And also, you know, we have our multidisciplinary uh, tumor board that makes it every uh, Friday that I attend. So being able to take um, patients to the tumor boards, discuss with my colleagues in radiation oncology, plastics, um, ENT, um, and getting their ideas as well has been been wonderful. And and that was something that was you know already in place and that we've um, just added to since I've come. But um, it's been very very helpful um, to have that in an academic setting.
1: Now you both graduate from very strong fellowships. So with that category. And, and I know you both had very good fellowship experiences, but at the end of the day, you both only had 12 months to be exposed to a wide range of things, which includes cutaneous oncology, reconstruction, the actual most surgery, potentially nail surgery, dermabrasion, and depending on where you are, cosmetics, lasers, fillers. Is there anything you wish, and I'm going to you have to say something. You can't say no. Is there anything you wish you had learned in fellowship, but didn't?
0: Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing that um, I wish I had learned in fellowship um, was melanoma was doing MOs for melanoma. Um, At the Cleveland Clinic, currently we we do not do MOs for melanoma, and um, I think that's my biggest uh, regret is just not being trained in that. And um, so my goal, kind of out of practice, is to try to get acclimated to that and start doing more cases. And that's kind of the biggest uh, drawback. But other than that, I can I have nothing but positive things to say about our fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. And is that
1: something you,
0: you have a plan on how, how you want to
1: implement or overcome that?
0: Yeah, I think um, the first thing that I, I plan to do is uh, Dr. Kaufman, um, se- the senior uh, most surgeon in our practice, um, does most for melanoma. And I, I, I have plans to pull his cases and review um, the positives, positives and negatives and then review the literature and things. And um, being that I've only been nine months out, I have not had that chance yet, uh, but plan to do so in the next few months.
2: Dr. Collins. So um, one thing that I I wish that I had more training in was the really the business side of things um, in in a practice. I, I wish that I had learned more about profits and losses and how to make projections and um, you know when when do you want to hire someone um, when you know about buying new equipment um, and how to budget the department. And I feel like I didn't really have much um, experience either in residency or in fellowship regarding the business side of things. Once once I got out on my own. So I, I, um, wish that there was a, a little more training in that area.
1: And that's a perfect segue because there's certainly this whole other dimension of of medicine and medical training um, that goes far beyond simply having the skills to take care of our patients. And so how comfortable did you feel, for example, navigating that first job decision, contract negotiation, examining different practice models, trying to estimate the financial or cultural health of the place that you may be joining? Was that something you felt prepared for and and comfortable or give me some of your hindsight on that.
2: So I, I definitely did not uh, feel prepared for that. Um, I, I had very little training in contract negotiations. During my residency, we had someone come to Dartmouth and give a one-hour talk on that, and that uh, was the, about the extent that I had, had. So I really had to rely on my mentors and the most surgeons that I was working with um, during my fellowship to guide me and to make suggestions, and they thoroughly reviewed my contracts with me, um, which was extremely helpful. I have am um, very blessed to have a dad who spent most of his life in contract negotiations, So I also relied on him um, significantly. But I think that's definitely something that um, there should be more training in um, during residency and also during fellowship, because I had no formal training in that and and really felt like I could have used um, used more training.
0: Yeah, I think the, the Cleveland Clinic does a great job. Their DME office, the Graduate Medical Education Office, um, really provides a lot of ancillary information on um, contract negotiations, um, financial planning, um, buying a home, things like that. So I have to give kudos to the Cleveland Clinic for that. The biggest thing I think in terms of finding a practice that was a good fit is when you're when you're going to these practices and interviewing and talking with them, one of the most helpful things I found was was talking to the medical assistants, talking to the front staff talking to the billing department, you get a true idea of what the practice is like, um, what the day-to-day is like, and that can be really, really helpful. But honestly, uh, fresh out of practice, you don't really know what you want and what you need in a practice until you experience that day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And so as someone fresh out of of fellowship going into a practice, you don't really know your preferences and things that you don't like until you actually experience them. So that's one thing that I'm kind of learning and tailoring as well. If you think about things like a young physician's committee at
1: the AAD or potentially on a state level. Um, what, what do you think is the role of a young physician's committee within the most College or within the AAD to do more to prep us for that transition, right? Right now we're, op- we're operating a environment where a significant percentage of individuals do not stay with their first job. Um, I, I don't know what the exact statistics are as of 2019, but there's much more turnover in the first few years of employment than there should be. So, what, what do you see the role of a young physicians committee, or whose job is it to really educate on that?
0: That's, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, within residency programs, there's house staff associations, and I was a part of our education committee forming those programs, educating young doctors about outside life experiences. Advocating or putting, implementing one into the most college, I think would be ideal and be really great because, you know, I think just in the nine months that I've been out, I've learned so much outside of the medical field that I can help other young doctors with the same experience. Now, everyone's experience is completely different, but any mentorship that other young docs can give residents and fellows, I think is priceless. I I think I I strongly support uh, putting something like that in place.
2: I, I totally agree, uh, you know, having a mentorship program where more experienced people can help, you know, guide new fellows as they as they navigate their new jobs, I think is invaluable. And so, I think that would be a wonderful thing to add to the Mohs College.
1: Sean just mentioned a nice point about, you know, when you're in the practice you're interviewing, pulling aside a medical assistant or somebody who um, you're not directly interviewing with and getting their sense or just reading their vibes or observing the interactions. Lindsay, is there anything that you have to add as a little trick that goes beyond just the formal face-to-face that you have with the recruiters or the owner of the practice. Any any tips or tricks for, for getting the vibe of a place?
2: I just tried to talk to as many people as possible in in the department. I would talk to all the MAs. I would talk to any residents around, any medical students around, and um, just tried to get their vibes about the practice, probably the main thing.
1: Lindsay, you're a little bit more out from fellowship than Sean than is, but I'll ask you both. What are your goals for the first three years out from fellowship? And you can answer that question in any domain of your life that you want to share with our audience. So I, I'll just leave it as that. What are your goals for these first Three years out from
2: fellowship. So, right out of fellowship, I had several goals. One was to really increase my referral base at the University of Oklahoma, so really build my reputation in Oklahoma City, get to know as many of the family medicine physicians, the local dermatologists, the physician's assistants as possible, and really increase my referral base for for Mo's as well as my cosmetic practice. I also wanted to increase my leadership both at the university level and then also in the Mo's College and beyond. And um, one of my goals was to become the director of most surgery, which happened this last year at the University of Oklahoma. And then um, I also have been trying to build the culture at Oklahoma. And one of my goals is to really um, improve and build on the culture of um, the University of Oklahoma. So those are probably my, my three biggest goals during my first years, first uh, few years out.
0: I think my biggest goals, uh, fresh out of fellowship, are fairly simple: just to be be a local expert in dermatology, providing the best care for patients, um, providing up-to-date data, knowledge, expertise in the field, and also, you know, to, to get my name out there, and and just to be that person to go to that if if someone goes to see me, I want them to be comfortable, I want them to be confident in in who they're seeing, and I want them to know that they're getting the best care. And it sounds simple and cliche, but that's That's basically it. I just want to be the local expert that provides the best care that people enjoy coming
1: to Yeah, it does sound simple, but I think that's the, the vision that most of us have. And that's what gets most of us out of our bed in the morning. Very few of us have had the, the luxury or the good fortune to sort of step into a place with the dream team of administrative staff and support staff, the most high-end equipment and a schedule that's, you know, loaded with just the right mix of patients. And, and so what advice do you have for your colleagues in term of building those referrals, trying to reach out to other places? Is it a social media is it a face-to-face are you simply relying on the university to do that lindsay tell me about that.
2: So, shortly after I finished my fellowship and I started at the University of Oklahoma, I uh, went out into the community and I set up appointments with a local dermatologist um, and I went with one of my medical assistants and um, I introduced myself to them. I took them our referral forms, took them information about myself, the things I treated, the things that they could refer to me for, um, and really just tried to get to know them and let them know I was new and in the community and that I was there to take great care of their patients. And that helped um, significantly at first. I saw a significant increase in my referral base after doing that. And then also I gave as many lectures as possible. I gave the family medicine grand round shortly after I started there. I went into the community and I um, spoke at physician assistant conferences and went to state conferences and spoke and um, every lecture opportunity I could find, I took just to um, introduce myself to the community.
0: Yeah. Similarly, I um, Googled the, the local dermatologists in the area and asked our, our Dr. Kaufman, our boss, um, you know, who, who he normally gets referrals to. And I I went around to the local offices. I introduced myself in person. I gave out my resume and I pretty much just said, you know, if you, if you need help with any skin cancers, I'm, I'm here to help. Please let me know how I can be of assistance. And I think it's really important, you know, similarly me looking for radiation doctors or plastic surgeons to help with me. I wanted to meet that person, get to know them and create a relationship. And so that's what I wanted to do in order for that. You know, I'm not there to not there to steal cases or take business. I'm here to help and just provide the best care. And I just wanted to get my name out there and that they're comfortable with me and familiar with me that if they need my help, they know where to find me.
1: And so has there been any struggles in terms of communicating with referrals and with referring physicians, or is that something that happens fairly natural for for both of you?
0: No, at first I, you know, I well, one, I didn't know who to refer to. So once I figured that out, now there's a logistical thing because a lot of patients do not want to travel too far. And there's a lot of traffic in Southern California and patients are fairly resistant to go to the bigger academic institutions. So finding local docs that are willing to help you and work with you um, was difficult at first, but just that constant dialogue with other doctors, most, most docs are there, they want to help patients just as much as you do. And as long as you reach out, have a good agreement with them and a good relationship, it's been working out fine. But it was a struggle at first.
2: And I also think it's really important to have follow-up with the referring physicians afterwards. And so that's something that we're really trying to improve right now at the University of Oklahoma. Um, We're currently following up by just sending our faxing our notes to them, but we're trying to um, elaborate on that and have a better better system in place to have really good follow-up with them so they know what exactly we did and and that we're taking great care of their patients. For
1: the last couple of minutes, I want to change gears a little bit and just... Just talk about your role as a leader and whether or not you're a director of something or uh, have a formal leadership position, we do end up largely being the leaders of our healthcare team. Um, and that defines our relationships with nurses, our histotechs, our coders, our administrators. Lindsay, what is it like when there are age gaps, experience gaps? You've got the nurse who's probably been a Mo's nurse for 25 years. You're coming in and you have different standards or Different habits than your predecessors. How do you manage? those difficulties of being a young physician mm-hmm. or maybe looking like a young physician?
2: Yeah, I think it's really important when you're right out of fellowship not to go into a practice and make big decisions uh, or big changes um, and, and um, change a lot of things in the department. You want to start slow. You really want to get to know your team, really understand the flow of operations. You, you know, most people are young when they're out of fellowship. Um, you're much younger than the people that you're managing. And so you really need to build rapport with your team and understand understand um, the details of, of the team prior to making big changes and making big decisions in the, um, for the department. You know, age is, is not a um, criteria in leadership. And so you just have to look past that and you have to, um, there are great, you know, really young leaders out there. And so you, you just have to follow the rules of good leadership and um, look beyond the issue of age.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think coming out first, everyone has tendencies, things they like to do, preferences. And that even goes down to the medical staff, the medical assistants, the nurses, the front office. And so there are certain things that you do differently than other docs, even little intricacies. And I think it's really important to, like Lindsay said, meet with your team when you first meet them. Kind of almost, I even created an outline of things that I I have preferences of. Just little things, sutures, bandages, and just showing them that you care about patient care. I think is the most important thing because if you show that you care, then they will also care about the patients that they're, they're taking care of for you. And just investing a little bit of time to get to know them, get to know what they like to do. And they're going to have tips and tricks for you throughout the way. And creating that dialogue back and forth where you can even learn bandaging tricks, things to get patients comfortable from them. And as long as you create a, an environment where you're not the boss or the dictator, and rather this is a, a communal relationship where we're both going to learn from each other, I think that's really, really helpful and so another thing that's important in that relationship is having these discussions outside of the room because it gives confidence to the patient it also shows that you're you know willing to listen to your staff and those things that are really important um, in terms of patient care outcomes and the patient's confidence in you if the nurses are supporting you and there's not any discord then that's really important outcomes
1: well, this has been uh, really interesting and it's great to sort of explore different uh, walks of life and, and different avenues of what it means to be a most surgeon. So, Lindsay, Sean, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, it's a busy meeting for everybody. I certainly want to thank the most College and also Brett for helping organize this for us today and making this happen on site in Baltimore. I want to thank our listeners for their attention and I look forward to everybody tuning in next time. Please let us know if you have any suggestions or recommendations for guests. Uh,
2: thank you and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Most Surgery.